Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Back in 2019, Hawaii passed the Our Care, Our Choice Act, and that allowed for residents in the state of Hawaii to participate in medical aid in dying if they met certain criteria and they and their provider decided this was an appropriate thing for them to consider. And this is something that has been somewhat controversial. It took many years for this law to be passed, but it has also provided some choices for individuals. And today I have Aubrey Hawk on the line. She is with Compassion and Choices, starting off originally as a consultant about 10 years ago and moving on to be a community relations representative. She's really been able to help publicize to individuals who are interested about how this act works and has even taken on the role as patient navigator for people that she knows may have some trouble finding care teams that are willing or able or knowledgeable to provide this option for their patients. So I want to thank you for joining me today, Aubrey. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Kozak. Now, let's talk a little bit about your involvement. This sort of started about 10 years ago, and, you know, you kind of took this on and learned a lot about the concept and then became really a true believer, and you're out there trying to help other people who are struggling to find providers. How did this all take place? That's exactly right. I um, I was actually originally asked to um, support Compassion and Choices Hawaii in their campaign to educate the people of Hawaii about this option of medical aid in dying. Um, the organization actually is a national organization um, with volunteers and action teams in many states across the nation. In Hawaii, Compassion and Choices had been uh, working for almost 20 years off and on um, since the effort sort of started in a grassroots way here to get this law passed. Um, they really upped their their involvement to support the Hawaii's the people of Hawaii, which, you know, surveys showed um, really supported this issue um, in 2012. And that's when I got involved. Um, it was a very interesting time just trying to help people understand why medical aid in dying is, for instance, not suicide. Or, for instance, you know, it's something that actually most people would, would want as an option for themselves. Um, many doctors actually want as an option for themselves. So just kind of getting people to re-look at the option and, and reframe it in their minds was a very interesting and rewarding exercise. And then as I got more involved in doing the work and talking about it with friends and family, I began to hear stories from my own beloved circle of friends. One in particular was a high school girlfriend who confessed to me that her father, whom we all knew had passed away from cancer, pancreatic cancer many years before, had actually um, taken his own life with a shotgun due to the extraordinary pain and, and the reality of only more pain to come because of his prognosis and diagnosis. And that act was so violent and heartrending and just devastated the family, and they are all still carrying a lot of guilt and sadness from that. And I began to realize 
that this option is maybe not for everyone, of course, but it definitely can be a blessing for those who, who really do want to consider it. So that's when I began to take on a little bit more of an expanded role with Compassion and Choices um, and really helping to spread the word to the community and to providers um, and to our lawmakers um, of the need for this option. I'm so sorry to hear about your friend's father because, you know, in the medical profession, we know pancreatic cancer is particularly painful towards the end, and there's not Mm -hmm. a lot of pain medication that can actually help with that deep level of discomfort. And, you know, it's one of those really horrible ends that you know if you have this diagnosis, this is what's going to happen. And any way that we could make someone more comfortable, it's optimal. I mean, that's what physicians want to do is to take away pain and discomfort. And that's really part of the role. Now, you know, a lot of people think if you were to choose something like this, it would be exclusive of instead of and not involving something along the lines of hospice. You know, one of the requirements to participate in this act is that you would have to have a diagnosis for which there was a terminal prognosis. And in that situation, that's equivalent to what we often consider someone would look at if they were enrolling in hospice. But the studies and and looking at other states, states like Oregon, uh, they actually found that there was a higher rate of hospice enrollment. In fact, I think 80, 90 percent of folks had also concurrently enrolled in hospice at the time that they were looking at using this particular option for themselves. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And it's a wonderful statistic that, um, in fact, the studies show that in states who uh, which have authorized medical aid in dying, and by the way, for listeners who aren't aware of what medical aid in dying is, it is... Um, a law that we have here in Hawaii and in several other states in the nation um, that allows a terminally ill person with a six-month prognosis, six months or less to live, uh, to request and receive from their doctor a prescription to um, a medication they can take to end their suffering and die peacefully in their sleep uh, if that's an option that they choose and to self-administer. States that have this option authorized show uh, a marked increase in the utilization of not only hospice, but of palliative care services as well. And we think the reason for that is, is that the, the discussion, just bringing it up, this kind of, like you said, a little bit controversial perhaps, hot button issue of medical aid in dying just brings the whole end of life option conversation to the forefront and people are then speaking to their providers about all of their end-of-life options and just bringing that up earlier on in their lives so that they're not waiting until they have that diagnosis necessarily to find out where their provider stands on being able to support them with any and all of these options. So it's a really good thing. Well, and I think it's also given another choice. You know, the whole name of the act, Our Care our choice. It's really about giving people options as they navigate towards this time that may they may have a terminal diagnosis to allow themselves to make a choice on their own terms. I think that's really mm-hmm. the idea is that it's not taking away anyone's choices. It's adding to. So it's it's providing another option in addition to what's available out there right now. 
and it still allows them to take advantage of some of the other palliative services that you described and some of the wonderful things that our local hospice organizations have been able to provide and also other palliative care, concurrent care, supportive care teams have been able to do for people who are suffering. So I do yeah. think that it's yeah. it's adding to, it's never it's mm-hmm. never taken away anyone's options. It's just continue to add to that mm-hmm. list of support that we want to have for individuals that is certainly who are suffering. Correct. And I'm and I'm glad that you're emphasizing that because there is a lot of confusion. Um, many patients do think, well, if I choose medical aid in dying, does that mean I, I can't have palliative care anymore or they're gonna kick me out of hospice or does that mean I if I choose it, can I not ever change my mind? No, none of that is the case. None of these options are mutually exclusive. Um, they, they can all be accessed and considered and measured and thought about uh, equally as someone is approaching their end of life, and they're available to anyone who qualifies. Um, and many patients who... who may even receive a medical aid and dying prescription and have that in hand, uh, don't end up even ingesting the medication. Just having it gives them that peace of mind to know that they have regained a little measure of control at the end of their life. But most of these patients, uh, at least 70%, who do choose to pursue the Arcara Choice Act are cancer patients. And cancer, as you know, the treatment of this disease um, can just just wreak havoc on a person's quality of life. And to be able to have this option of medical aid in dying, even if the patient does not end up ingesting the medication, just can transform their final days and weeks into a more peaceful time where they can just really relax and live out their precious remaining days. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I have Aubrey Hawk from Compassion and Choices on the line. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what are some of the statistics that we now know for the last couple of years as we've had some experience with having this type of medical aid and dying legalized. And where do we go in the future? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Aubrey Hawk on the line. She has been a consultant and then becoming a community relations representative for Compassion and Choices. And recently, there was an article in the Star Advertiser that described the experience that we've had with this medical aid and dying availability in the last couple of years. And, you know, reading through that article, Aubrey, I was kind of struck by a couple of different things. You know, a lot of times prior to this being legalized, we were a lot of people had preconceived notions as to who might consider asking for medication. And then there was sort of an assumption that if you would ask for medicine, of course you would use it. But that also is not the case. When you look over the last couple of years, who's been asking for the prescription and how many people have used it? Sure. You know, um, 
in the first year, so 2019, the law took effect January 1st of 2019. And the Department of Health, the law requires the DOH to prepare a report to the legislature that's due to be posted on July 1st of the following year. So we now have three full-year reports. In the first year, we had about 40 people request the medication. And now in 2021, we saw that we have had about 70 people request the medication. So people are either uh, becoming more aware of the option, um, becoming more comfortable talking to their providers about it. More providers are actually starting to um, be comfortable supporting their patients. In fact, we had a 50% increase in the number of unique different doctors prescribing uh, 2021 over 2020, which is really great news because the goal is to normalize the practice and have it in sort of the standard of care rather than have one or two doctors that all patients are, you know, sort of shunted off to, to help them with this. Ideally, a patient's own beloved care team uh, is who can help them with this process as well. And so we like to, you know, kind of keep it in that care team and not have have patients have to go off and try to find another entirely new doctor at this very, very hard part time of, of life. Um, we also found that, you know, a lot of times um, this movement, is, it was really the impetus for it kind of came with the baby boomers. So baby boomers like to have what they want and they get what they want. And after a lifetime of that, began to realize that they would also like those, those options when it comes time for the end of life. And those kind of movements, we often see uh, Caucasian early adopters, white, male, affluent, college-educated. Um, we're very pleased to see that, of course, those people are the ones accessing the law and, you know, just tend to have greater access to health care in general. Um, but in Hawaii, we did see of the 29 people last year who uh, actually did ingest their prescription and pass away, 12 of them were Native Hawaiian or Asian Pacific Islander or Hispanic. And so that is a, a really um, gratifying show of diversity in uh, accessibility of this law. And, I, and that's a testament to... Uh, a lot of the work that's being done by Compassion and Choices in this state to really educate across the islands, not only um, providers and healthcare systems, but to educate the healthcare consuming public as well. Um, personally, I, I do go out and give talks to various rotaries and other community groups, and I have found that while at first people are a little bit uh, hesitant or sort of uncomfortable talking about the topic of death, once they get going, it's really something people want to discuss. And so uh, I think just talking about it out there is kind of what's letting letting these numbers um, come in the way they are. And, and we're really pleased to see that. So we've really seen an increase, not just in the number of people asking for prescriptions, but you mentioned an increase in the number of doctors prescribing, individual doctors. 
And then we've also seen some significant diversity in the population of people who are requesting it. So I think the goals of the act was really to make this available to everybody. And that appears to be exactly who is responding to this. It crosses all spectra of people of different backgrounds. And also, it's also available on neighbor islands. Now, I'm curious, the COVID pandemic provided a lot of challenges for so many folks. And it's required that people no longer, actually for a while, nobody was traveling, nobody was even going out of their house. So how did the adoption of telemedicine kind of help with this? Um, Yeah, in that way, COVID was a blessing in disguise, because Hawaii, the Department of Health, we'd already been making some strides with telemedicine because of our geographic makeup with an island state, the way we are, people can't just drive to their doctor appointments necessarily. And we do have such a a severe shortage on the neighbor islands. Um, So the fact that telehealth um, is is a, a legal way to have that first consultation with your providing doctor, uh, um, sorry, your attending physician, that's the one who does the prescription for medical aid and dying, um, is really, you know, just really eases that burden on, on a law, you know, on a, this law is very difficult to access. Um, and there's a lot of safety um, provisions in the law that, can end up being barriers to people who are suffering from a terminal illness, especially on the neighbor island. And so in or, uh, to be able to have all of those consultations happen via telehealth, uh, the first initial consultation with the attending physician, the second consultation that's required with your consulting physician, and the third evaluation from a mental health provider can all be done via telehealth. And that has that has really been a help for people. We're very grateful for that, and I hope that to see that continue. Okay. Well, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about what is the future and what else can we do to help support the Our Care, Our Choice Act and availability, not just on Oahu, but to all of our neighbor islands and improve the options that people have towards end-of-life care. We'll be right back toward after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm talking with Aubrey Hawk. She has really helped to educate the community and works with Compassion and Choices and is very passionate about trying to provide more options for patients who are in the terminal phases of life with the Our Care, Our Choice Act and Medical Aid in Dying. Now, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about the ways in which people have expanded access, particularly through telemedicine. You know, this is uh, certainly an opportunity that we have seen in the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic really blossoming the utilization of telemedicine. And that that was a technology we had, but it required certain types of designations as being rural and 
now telemedicine is sort of like what I call the 21st century you know, home visit. And this is the old way that doctors used to come to your home. But I don't have to leave my office and you don't have to leave your living room. So it's really provided some different options for folks. And you mentioned that that's really helped, particularly for those people who struggled to find providers that were within a logistical distance that they could go see. And also, you know, we have to consider people who are very ill may not feel very good taking long trips in cars or going on long traveling excursions to Oahu or other locations. So you mentioned that telemedicine has helped. What are some of the other things that have been positive to help promote the education about this particular option that people have? Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, we, I, um, you know, I and many of my colleagues with Compassion and Choices, and, and we do have a pretty robust network of volunteers on all the islands, um, are um, giving talks to various groups, uh, community groups, church groups um, throughout the islands to just help people understand that this is absolutely our right to go in and have this end-of-life conversation with our providers and get that information out in the open on the table to start talking about your wishes um, with your friends, family, and providers now before you are even in the, you know, neighborhood of being diagnosed with a terminal illness, which, you know, one of the downsides of us, of, of we humans living so much longer these days, is that ultimately many more of us will die with a terminal illness. And so an option like medical aid in dying becomes more and more of a reality that many of us are going to want to consider. Um, you know, um, I'm also pleased that as, as people are becoming more comfortable speaking with their doctors about this and, and as doctors are more comfortable um, supporting their patients, we're seeing the average wait time uh, between the first oral request that needs to be made uh, until the patient has the prescription in hand has gone down slightly. However, it's still way too long. First of all, Hawaii's, Hawaii's mandated wait time between the first and second oral request is 20 days, which is far and above the longest in the nation, and needlessly so. Um, we are seeing other states who are passing their laws for the first time or amending the laws that have been on the books for many years, uh, taking that waiting period down to 48 hours and with no adverse effects. Um, people at this stage of their lives do not need uh, a mandated additional two or three weeks to reconsider. This is something they have given very carefully measured thought to. And so that extended waiting period actually becomes an extended suffering period. And so Compassion and Choices is very much in support of the Department of Health's recommendation to reduce that waiting period. Um, and in fact, even waive it to have the, the attending provider be able to waive that waiting period if it's clear that the patient will not survive it. Um, it's really heartbreaking for me to see, and I do come across patients who are have made that first oral request and then are sitting there in pain and anxiety and suffering 
just waiting for those 20 days to, uh, you know, pass before they can make their second request. And they are actually about a third of people are dying before they can make it to that 20th day. Um, so that's not the intent of the law. You know, the intent of the law is that people who need and want this option can have it. Um, so for future, we are looking at um, not only uh, allowing doctors to be able to waive that waiting period if the patient won't survive it, but to just reduce it in general to 15 days or less, um, which would bring it in line with all the other states that have this authorized option. What are some of the other ways or directions that we could move in the future? You mentioned decreasing the waiting time, potentially providing the opportunity for physicians to waive that if they felt there was a medical urgency or a need or a needless suffering that was taking place. Are there other types of ways that we could potentially improve the law as it was first passed? I know in a lot of states they've made revisions or other states have watched to kind of adopt what the initial states have done and tried to troubleshoot areas that might have needed to have more attention as time went on. What else should we take a look at? Are there other provisions of this that we should reconsider or take a closer look at again? Sure. The Department of Health also, um, for the third year in a row, has recommended to the legislature that advanced practice registered nurses who are qualified to prescribe Schedule II narcotics, um, which is the medication that's prescribed for a medical aid and dying prescription, um, should no longer be prohibited from serving their patients who wish to access this option. Again, with the rural health care um, provider shortage, Many, many of my neighbors, I, I'm speaking to you from the east side of Hawaii Island, uh, we are definitely rural. And a lot of my friends and neighbors' primary care providers are APRNs, Advanced Practice Registered Nurses. And qualified APRNs who have this prescriptive authority are already, um, all of the aspects of the Our Care, Our Choice Act process are well within their existing scope of practice. So uh, while we may hear uh, a little bit of fear-mongering from some people potentially who are opposed to medical aid and dying in principle anyway, may say, oh, we, we, we can't be just willy-nilly expanding the scope of APRNs. Well, we would not be doing that because APRNs are already authorized and given that authority by the state of Hawaii to do everything that's required under the Our Care, Our Choice Act. So we would like to see this law amended to no longer prohibit them from serving their patients. Um, that would greatly increase access to care. Well, and that's certainly something that we can look at legislatively. I know there have been several proposals that have been brought up, and it looks like we'll have to consider doing that again to expand access again, just to make sure that it's an option. You know, I think one of the other one of the other things you alluded to very early on is that if somebody chooses to ask for this, not everybody is taking the medication. Having it available by itself does provide some peace to someone who might want to utilize that in the future. Uh, but also, it's something that does not necessarily take away the options of hospice, concurrent care, supportive care, palliative care. And it can be 
another avenue to pursue simultaneously. I often think some of these areas are synergistic in the way that someone can get end-of-life care from a variety of different locations, and it all works together as as a as a unit. Now, we have only about a minute or so left. You also act as a volunteer patient navigator. Is that right? That's right. Um, How could someone find you? On... Oh, how can people find me? Um, they can either call or email me, um, and I can give you that information right now, if that's okay. Sure. All right. They can email Aubrey at aubreyhawkpr.com or call 808-351-5800. And I will do my best to help people who are um, really kind of hitting a brick wall with their current care team. And you will help us to connect them to providers and also provide some education. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. And thank you to Aubrey Hawk from Compassion and Choices.